स्थापकाय चर्मस्वूपिने अवतार वरिष्ठा रामकृष्णा ते नम वसुदेवसुत कंसचाणूरमर्दनम so we are almost in the last section of the second chapter of bhagavad gita just to recapitulate as the for as the background of today's discussion we will indicate that arjuna asks krishna the characteristics of a sthita pragya sthita pragya the one who is established in his wisdom never wavers from his wisdom never deviates from his wisdom we found that arjuna asked the characteristics of such a person in the verse 54 the 54th verse of the second chapter and then we found that the bhagwan in response sri krishna in response to arjuna's question speaks about the general traits of a sthita pragya or a sthita dhihi the same meaning the one is pragya is sthita one is dhi intellect is sthita means established it never wavers so the general traits was described in the 55th and in the 56th verse and now we will find that arjuna asks three things that what are the characteristics of a sthita pragya the general characteristics and when he is conversing with others what is his way of conversation that sthita pragyasya ka bhasha samadhistasya keshave sthitadhi kim prabhaseta kimaseta vrajeta kim so when he is in samadhi what are his characteristics that was spoken of in the 55th and in the 56th verse king prabhaseta how he converse with others that was spoken of in the 57th verse and when he is not in samadhi when he is not conversing with others he is just relaxing he is with himself he is just alone with himself so he is kimasita speaks of that when he is just sitting he is not moving about he is not interacting with the world so what are his characteristics that was spoken of in the 58th from 58 to the 63rd the six verses and then the last eight verses the next eight verses from 64 to the 71st speaks of the characteristics which finds expression which is manifested through his life when he is interacting with the world vrajetaki when he is moving around and we already studied from the 64th which started with this raga dvesha vyukta istu vishayan indriyas charan atma vashyai vidhe atma prasadam adhi gachati that maybe he is interacting with the world but the likes and dislikes has fallen off from him he gets he doesn't get attached to anything that is a man of self control is vidhe atma he is moving among the objects of the senses but the senses are under restraint and as a result he is free from attachment and hatred raga dvesha vyukta istu such a person alone can attain the serenity of mind prasadam adigachati and that serenity can lead to bliss in one hand and lead to wisdom in another hand that also we studied in the very next verse 
you feel a tremendous relaxation the weightage of all those baggage which you were carrying that has been taken off from you and that relaxation that let go speaks of the bliss that ensues from that state of mind so that's what was spoken of as prasade sarva dukhana all the sufferings vanishes a let go ensues a tremendous relaxation that all the baggage i was carrying they have been taken away from me and it's not only mere relaxation it follows with wisdom it is our likes and dislikes which is the cause which is the reason for all our biases that we develop bias because of our likes and dislikes and the bias distorts our vision we can never see the thing as it is that the example which we gave again and again that the stump is lying on the corner of a park in the twilight hours a child who is in search of mother sees it as a child as a mother the mother who is in search of the child from a distance perceives it as the child the thief who is running away from the police sees it as the police the police who is in search of the thief sees it as the thief a lover who is in search of the beloved sees it as its beloved so what it speaks of that the bias distorts our vision doesn't allow us to see the thing as it is when all the bias falls off we see the thing as it is and that's the criteria for wisdom that all the filters have fallen off i see the thing as it is as sri ramakrishna used to say the two players are playing chess the third one is the onlooker the onlooker always says the correct move because his mind is free from all expectations of winning is free from all the fear of losing he is totally focused on the game and that's why that enters in his intelligence his wisdom so that's the thing these two factors which was spoken of in the 65th verse in the 66th and in the 67th verse which we studied in the last class it was mentioned that the contrary to that that if our intellect is not established in wisdom is not steady is not equipoised it can neither give us happiness that was spoken of in the 66th because our mind is constantly fluctuating it never allows us to contemplate on some decision which we have taken after giving a thorough judgment means after giving a thorough understanding of it after having a thorough understanding of it and as a result what happens we find that in our life constantly we are like a grasshopper jumping from one uh, decision to the another decision just the way the grasshopper constantly goes on jumping from one spot to the other we go on changing our decision and that speaks of the total chaos in our mind and with that chaos we can never think of tranquility bliss happiness as was spoken of in the 66th verse nasti buddhir ayuktasya nacha yuktasya bhavana nacha bhavayata shantir ashantasya kutah sukham that the one whose mind is not focused is not yukta is not united with the ideal of his life that he has chosen a path and he is not fixed to that is constantly wavering in such a mind you can cannot have bhavana bhavana speaks of assimilation as swami vivekananda used to say that most of us confuse education with the gathering of information but education is not gathering of information it is taking an idea and 
living that idea. Just that becomes my life. I breathe that idea. I feed on that idea. I assimilate that idea. He used to give an example of the mollusk, which uh, gets irritated by a sand particle. That how the pearl is formed, a sand particle irritates the mollusk. That irritation causes the mollusk to dive deep into the over ocean bed or into the river bed. And it starts secreting its saliva over that irritant, the sand particle. Goes on uh, salivating over it. And that's secretion that condenses, saturates and condenses to form the pearl. So Swamiji used to say that the real education is that. Take up an idea, leave it, dream it, assimilate it. It should become a part and parcel of your being. Internalize it. That is That speaks of bhavana. But if our intellect is constantly wavering, we will be just simply uh, in the present day what we do, the, the way we go on browsing the internet without trying to uh, get the information of a thing on which I'm researching, just simply aimlessly I'm just browsing. That in, way, in no way entails knowledge. The knowledge is I have fixed my goal, that this is the subject of my research. Based on that, of course, I can go on searching uh, the related topics from the internet. That speaks of bhavana, that you have already fixed your uh, object of contemplation, object of research, and on that you are uh, just researching, you're nourishing that idea. That idea has become the be-all and end-all of your existence. So that speaks of bhavana. So unless you have develop that type of focus so that being focused on a particular idea, you go on nurturing it. The mind will be constantly wavering. And so in such a mind which is constantly wavering, there cannot be peace. There cannot be happiness. So that's the thing. There's the idea of bhavana is very important. That to live on an idea is the bhavana. To make that idea as a part of your life. To assimilate it. That speaks of life. Assimilation. It's not accumulation. The rock is inanimate because whatever the dust falls on it, it doesn't change. It just goes on accumulating. But what speaks of life, the food which we take is converted into our body, is converted into a cell. We have assimilated it. We have made it our own. So this assimilation is what is being termed as, as bhavana. Unless we can do it, there cannot be any focus in our mind. There cannot be any uh, equipoise in our mind. And that speaks of the constant uh, fluctuation, constant turmoil in our mind. And such a mind can never be at peace. So that was spoken of in the 66th verse. And then in the 67th verse, it spoke of that if our Indriyas are constantly being directed by the objects of the senses. That even one indriya, one of the sense organ has the capacity to destroy us. And what to speak of if all the indriyas, if all the objects of the senses are constantly luring us, is constantly uh, uh, dragging us, and is uh, what is the, they are resulting in the deviation from the main course of my life. That will, of course, there's, there's an, uh, there's obviously that is going to end up in total destruction. So just as a strong wind sweeps a boat off its chartered course on water. So even if one of the senses on which the mind focuses can lead to, to the can lead the intellect to astray. So when we find that the in the that that's the example is been given in the 67th verse that indriyanang hi charatang yanmana anuvidhiyate 
तदस्य हरति प्रज्ञां वायु नावम इन द वाटर्स व्हेन द शिप इज फॉलोइंग ए पार्टिकुलर डायरेक्शन एंड द स्ट्रॉन्ग विंड कम्स एंड द शिप गॉट्स डेविएटेड फ्रॉम इट्स डायरेक्शन इट गेट्स लॉस्ट सिमिलरली इन आवर लाइफ विद ऑल आवर गोल व्हेन वी आर ट्राइंग टू अप्रोच the wind the turmoil of even one of the senses can deviate us what to speak of all the senses so that's the idea which was spoken of in the 67th verse that never allow yourself to be dragged by the senses then there is no question of wisdom you will be totally destroyed and an example we gave that there is a in uh, shukti sudhakar is a wonderful is a wonderful sloka what it says kuranga matanga patanga bhringa meenahatah panchabhireva pancha eka pramadi sakatham nahanyate ya sevate panchabhireva pancha at kuranga the deer it is drawn by the sweet sound the way the hunter uh, will be hunting the deer they will be they will start playing some melodious music and the deer is drawn by that so just by the sound the sweet sound the deer is killed the hunter hunts it matanga the bees are attracted by the fragrance they start sucking the nectar of the flower and they are so absorbed in it at night the petals close and the bees get trapped within the flower and dies insects are drawn by the light if the fire is burning is lit at night you will find the insects are falling into it and dying so drawn by the light and that causes their death bringa the elephant is lured by touch that's how the elephants are trapped the female elephant will go and touch the male elephant and run and there will be a trap on the way and the male elephant falls on it and gets trapped so bringa by touch and meena the fish its desire for eating this the all the five senses has been spoken of it gets it swallows the bait and that's how it's caught by the fisherman and that's becomes entails its death so just one sense organ is sufficient to lead to the destruction and as a human being we find all the five senses are distracting us continuously how can we think of being integrated in our life it can never speak of wisdom we are bound to be lured by the senses and that speaks of our short sightedness and that can lead to our destruction so that's why the gita in the context of describing the characteristics of sthitadhi is actually also indicating the sadhana the practice that what is spontaneous the characteristics which are spontaneous in the life of one who is established in wisdom becomes the sadhana the practice for a novice for one who has chosen this path which can ultimately lead to the fulfillment just by being deviated by the senses we can never reach the fulfillment being lured by the senses we can never reach fulfillment the way to fulfillment is the equipoise the sthitadhi the equipoise of a realized soul and that's the thing we have to imitate we have to practice the imitation of the spontaneous way of life of a realized soul is the sadhana for the one who is trying to establish in that so till this we have studied so and then in the 68th verse as a conclusion bhagwan said what tasmat asya mahavahu nigrihitani sarvashah indriyani indriyarthebhya tasya pragya pratishtita so therefore one who has restrained the senses from their objects 
in totality. That's very important that even a little desire can cause our distraction, can lead to distraction. So in totality, that no trace of desire should remain. So that's the thing which is our goal. One who has restrained the senses from their objects in totality, Sarvasha, then he alone can be uh, considered to be established in that highest knowledge, the transcendental knowledge in Pragya. So after saying that, so now the 69th sloka, which we are going to study is Bhagavad, the first chapter of Bhagavad Gita. The second chapter of Bhagavad Gita is having 72 slokas, 72 verses. So now we are in the 69th, almost in the end. This sloka is also very, very significant. What it is speaking? Ya Nisha Sarvabhutanam Tasyang Jagarti Sangyami Yasyang Jagrati Bhutani Sanisha Pashyato Munehe Ya Nisha Sarvabhutanam That which is night to all beings. A man of self-control is awake. It is day for him. Tasyang Jagarti Sangyami. Yanisha Sarvabhutana. That which is night to all beings. A man of self-control, for him it is the daytime. He is awake. Yasyang Jagrati Bhutani. And where all beings are awake. Sanisha Pashyato Mune. That is night for the Muni. The word Muni means Manan Shila Muni, the one who is always contemplating, Manan Shila. So such a person, the one who is contemplating, who is always established in his self, for him, what is day for others is night for him. In Bhagavad Gita, some of the commentaries like Madhushudan Saraswati's commentary, they say that the analogy of crow and owl. The crow, what is the daytime for the crow, is night for the owl. The owl sees nothing in the daytime. Its eyes are so constituted that it can see only the infrared light. At night, when we feel that it is dark, actually it is not dark. It is the earth, uh, the other hemisphere of the earth where the sunlight is not falling directly. The light, the light is still uh, is diffracted. The diffracted rays are still there and it speaks of some very low frequency of light which our eyes cannot perceive. But the owl's eyes, the nocturnal animal's eyes are designed in such a way that they can see the infrared light. They cannot see the light which is above that frequency of red. So at night they see everything as if lighted. So that what is night for the owl, for us, including the crow, it is daytime. So why this crow and owl, uh, this owl analogy is given? That it has been found, it has been, it, it's a common thing that if the owl before the daybreak cannot enter into, doesn't enter into its hole where it stays. It cannot see anything and the crows will come and constantly pick on it and it may be the cause of the death of the owl because it is completely blind. So they are enemies. The crow can pick on the owl and it may cause the death of the owl because it cannot see anything. It should have no strength now. So this is the thing which has been spoken of here that there are two types of beings. For the entire creation, what is daytime is night for the realized soul. So the consciousness of the man of realization is so full of God that he cannot see anything apart from him. And on the contrary, the ignorant man lives in the world of plurality and God is a non-entity for him. God doesn't exist. And even if we say that I believe in God, it is just a mere word. 
we have no realization of it. So for most of us, God doesn't exist when I see this world of plurality. To understand this, that you may see how is it possible. The scriptures give again and again the example of the rope and snake analogy. That in the twilight hours, when I'm passing by and there's a rope lying, just lying on the side of the road, in the twilight hours, I see it as a snake. I'm deluded. I see it as a snake. Very interesting. When I'm seeing it as a snake, the rope has vanished. It can never happen that the rope and the snake both are visible together. Because of delusion, when I'm seeing the snake in the rope, the rope has vanished. Someone brings a torch and just says, see, it is not a snake. Why are you so scared of? It's just a rope. And when I see the rope again, the snake has vanished. These two can never stay together. So in Vedanta, there is no duality of good and evil. That we say that the good and evil coexist. So in Vedanta, they say there's no. Everything is good. But when the good, because of ignorance, is not manifested, it appears as evil. Just to give an example, a seed, a small seed has the capacity, is, has the potentiality to grow into a huge tree. But if that seed doesn't get proper nourishment in the form of water, if that seed is, has fallen in a uh, land which is drenched with water, always water, clogged with water, that seed will rot. It cannot grow. So if too much of water is there, it is going to rot. If no water is there, it is dry, then also it cannot grow. It has to have proper environment for its growth. So a rotten seed, a dried out seed, is not the expression of an evil. That there is nothing called evil existing separately. That a rotten seed or a dried seed is the proof of the fact that the potentiality of the seed couldn't be manifested because of the lack of proper conditions. So this good when cannot be manifested properly, cannot be manifested as in totality, it appears as evil. So everything is good, everything is God. The God, when because of ignorance is not manifested, it appears as evil. So there is no as such duality of good and evil. When we go to the realization, the same world, the same hideous world, all the so-called negativities won't come to my vision at all. I will see the God and God alone there. And again, when I am in ignorance, this world of duality will be the only thing which will be manifested to me. And that for it, from this it follows that the non-susceptibility to the influences of the nature, which results from self-control. When you are a controlled man, which the self-control has taken you to the realization, then the nature can no more influence you. The dualities of nature falls off. And that, has been, that was spoken of in the 65th verse, Prasade Sarvadukkhana. Just now we were studying that your life becomes full of bliss and that bliss entails in wisdom, buddhi, prasanna, jeta sohyashu, buddhi pariyavatishtate. So bliss and wisdom, this to becomes a part and parcel of your life. You become totally <clears throat> non-susceptible to the influence of nature. But for a man who is in ignorance, he's constantly being baffled by the polarities of life, sukha, dukkha. So for the, so there's this illumined soul, the natural state of mind is the equanimity, being established in God, nothing of this world can affect him. And the man who is, is in this world of, in this, realm of delusion can in no way relate to that equipoise. 
has been constantly baffled by the pole, these opposite polarities of life in the form of suffering and happiness. So these two are different planes of existence. The realized soul in no way can relate to this dukkha of an ordinary person. If you say, go and say that, that life is full of suffering, he will say, I don't understand what is suffering. What you are saying, I don't understand at all. You cannot relate to it. Just the way Swami Vivekananda used to give a nice example. That suppose a uh, lump of gold is lying on this table and a small infant is roaming about nearby. Some person comes, picks up that uh, lump of gold and runs away. The small child will never realize, that infant will never realize that something has been stolen. Why he won't realize? Because there is no thief in his mind. That infant, that small infant, its mind is innocent. All those ideas of stealing, theft, all those things are not in there in his mind. So he cannot relate to it. That something has been stolen, he doesn't know. So when I see evil in this world, we should repent not by thinking that there is so much evil out there. Our repentance should be opposite. That my mind is still polluted. That's why it can relate to the evils of life. So this is the thing which uh, is being spoken of wonderfully in this sloka. That ya nisha sarva bhutanam tasyang jagarti sangyami. As Tulsidas used to say very nicely, jaha ram taha nahi kaam. Jaha ram, where God is, there cannot be lust. These two cannot coexist. Jaha kaam taha nahi ram. That we cannot in this life uh, just cross the river by putting our two feet in two boats. It can never happen that either we are established in the God consciousness or we are totally immersed in this world. The one who is established in God's consciousness, for him, this world of duality falls off. He cannot relate to it. He has gone beyond it. He has gone beyond this projection. So he sees the divinity in each and every uh, being in each and every particle of this universe, he sees that as uh, in Kashi, in Vanaras, there is a very common uh, saying that people will say that Kashi ke har kankar hai bhole shankar. That when your vision gets totally transformed, it gets defied, you see the Lord in each and every being in each and every particle of this universe. Then where comes the, where come the evil, from where that evil can come? There's no evil. There is no as such polarity. He has transcended both the, the good and the bad. Beyond that he has gone. He is a total different state of existence. The, to understand these slokas, these analogies are very important. Swami Vivekananda in one of his lectures is giving a very wonderful analogy. He's saying that the puppies are fighting. The mother, the dog is just lying lazily and it has two, three puppies. They are having a good fight. If you just can read the psyche of the puppies, they are thinking, I will kill the other sibling. They're so enraged with each other. The mother who is lying, to her it is just a child's play. This is just child's play. They are just having a child's play. She is not bothered. So when from the mother's way of uh, plane of existence, it is just a mere childish play. And as a sip, as the small puppies, they are as if fighting uh, for that, that, that. For them, it is the winning or losing. It's not just a mere play. So from the more we transcend the dualities of life, Everything becomes as if the hustle and bustle, everything which we see is like the child's play. Why it is child's play? That just as the child is yet to grow in wisdom. 
So what it thinks it's to be its world appears to be childish to the one who has grown in wisdom. As Swami Vivekananda very nicely says that a child is busy with the toys and with the chocolates. Those are the things which uh, are the criteria for happiness for the child. If you go to the child and say, why are you wasting time? Just playing with the toys and just busy with the chocolate. There are so many higher, uh, what you say, this ideals. You have to become a scientist. Suppose you say that, what will you do? That as a scientist or as an astrophysicist, what will you do? Well, you will be looking at the gazing at the stars. Find, try to find out the science behind it and all uh, that as an astronomer, whatever uh, the things you are supposed to do. So you will be uh, having that higher type of life where you will be involved in all those research. The child asks, does it give me toys? Does it give me chocolates? You say, no, they don't give. And the child will immediately say, they are of no use to me. So the child cannot relate to the happiness of a scientist who is doing a research. It's impossible. So these are the two different worlds. So we have to evolve. So <clears throat> when we are like a child, we're just involved with the world, we are like the suckling babes. Constantly, that's why Swamiji used to say that, that we may have grown physically, but we are still the babes, the suckling babes. He used to say that we are all mustached babes that grown physically, have grown mustache, but actually they're babes. Why? Constantly busy in dealing with the world, constantly busy, constantly busy with engaging with the world, with the senses, with the sensate world, is totally involved. Always wants to. Just the baby needs something to suck. You always need something to suck. When something is not there, we just give a loud cry, less like a small child, and the mother comes and again puts something to uh, puts in its mouth something to suck, and it is again quiet. That's what is going on with us. That we are crying, and the mother nature provides us something. For some time we are quiet. Again we are crying, and that's what is going on. And this is the state of existence from where we have to evolve. And that's the thing we cannot relate as long as we are a small child. As long as we are a child, we cannot even relate to that. And that's what happens. That reality of the unenlightened, which is the majority. That is not the absolute reality. What I see as this world is not the absolute reality. It is the consensus reality of the majority. Most of us are deluded. We are in this disease state of existence, which has become endemic. And that's why we think it natural. When the pandemic becomes endemic, we have to live with it. It becomes natural. So this disease state of existence, this constantly chasing after the sensitive pleasures of world, that's what is the life of the majority. So it is not the absolute reality. There's absolute reality, something beyond that. But as most of us are living in this plane, it has become a consensus reality. We all consent, this is the reality. And that's why, when we see a realized soul not behaving like us, we say he's mad. The consensus reality will understand that how it develops. When I was in the Northeast India for quite a long time, apart from our school activities, we used to have some mobile medical uh, this dispensary. We used to go to the villages with a doctor, with the medicines, where the medical facilities are uh, not there. So just to provide the basic medical needs, the doctor with the medicines, we used to go with a medical van. And in one of the Northeast region, it's very much, it's extremely malaria prone. And the thing which we notice that all the children have a very bulging stomach. The stomachs are all protruding. And we asked the parents that what's the reason? So they couldn't, they told it, so it's normal that all the children have it. And then we ask the doctor, what's the reason? They say that it's a miracle that these all children are living. So many are living. It is this extremely malaria prone area and the people are not aware of it. All these children at certain point did have malaria. Many have died, but most of them 
have survived. If you, of course, quite a large number have died, but those who have survived, one of the symptoms, one of the after effects of malaria is your spleen gets enlarged. And that speaks of that, that bulging stomach. But as all the children are having it, no one actually is aware of the fact that it is something which is a disease. They take it to be normal, but as they see it, that it's in every child, that it doesn't need any treatment as if. So when we are diseased and the disease has become endemic, we think it's to be natural. And if someone is uh, behaving in a different way, equipoise, nothing affects him, we think he's abnormal because he's the minority. So it's like, <clears throat> just as we were saying, it's like small children like playing with toys. And when we speak of the higher goals in the life to these children, their benchmark is, what is their benchmark? Will those achievements deliver us toys? Will it give us the chocolates? So by saying this, Bhagwan is actually not condemning, condemning that that is a lower level of existence. It is to be condemned. He's not condemning. Actually, what he's saying that we have to transcend. It's quite okay as we evolve that we cannot expect a small child to behave like an adult. But also it is an, it, that if the child remains a child, that also is abnormal. It has to grow. So here, when Bhagavan is speaking of these two states of existence, he is not actually condemn, condemning that the most of us are in ignorance, deluded in ignorance. What he is actually indicating is that we have to grow. We shouldn't stop there. If the life in the sense of pleasure ultimately doesn't give us any happiness, that it should dawn in our mind that there should be a way out. We have to evolve. We shouldn't like a camel, that Sri Ramakrishna used to say, the camel thrives on thorny bushes. It eats the thorny bushes, it bleeds. But as it has no other alternative. The thorny bushes are the only food for him. So it goes on eating and it goes on bleeding. So this camel thrives on thorny bushes, it bleeds, but still it thrives on that. Our existence has become like that. We never think that there is a way out. There is a portal which can lead us to a higher plane of existence. So it is not to condemn, that it is not to condemn, but it is an advice to move on. As in Sanskrit they say, charai veti, charai veti. Don't be satisfied with the present state of life. There's a way out, move on. Sri Ramakrishna used to narrate a wonderful story to explain this idea of not to be satisfied with what you have as a default mode, design your life and go on progressing till you reach the ultimate spiritual fulfillment. He used to uh, speak of an woodcutter. He was a poor woodcutter. He used to go to the forest and he will cut the firewood and sell with that a meager income he had. And one day a brahmachari came from the deep forest. He came and he made this woodcutter and told, why are you just cutting this firewood? Move forward. There are a lot of treasures. The woodcutter at the beginning for a few days never gave importance to the words of Brahmacharya. He continued with his cutting of the firewoods. And then suddenly he thought, why the Brahmacharya told me to go, to proceed, to move forward. So he thought, let me go deep into the jungle. So he, when he proceeded deep into the forest, he was amazed. Actually, it was the forest of sandalwood trees. It was only the outer fringe was having all those firewoods. Deep inside there were sandalwood trees. So he started cutting the sandalwood and selling in the market. He became rich. And then suddenly he thought, he never asked me to be satisfied with the sandalwood trees only. He asked me to move on. Why not I move on? He went still deep into the forest. And then he found that there were copper mines. Then he found gold mines. Then he found diamonds. And he became extremely rich. So what's the story? The story speaks of never be satisfied with the default mode of existence. That to be in this censored plane of world, as the majority is, is not something to be condemned. That's okay. But we shouldn't be, when we find that the life is giving us kicks, we ultimately reach no fulfillment by being in this state of existence. 
why not try to relate to the other plane of existence and try to proceed towards that? So it is as an encouragement and not as a condemnation, Bhagwan speaks this sloka. So what this verse is, let's be before proceeding to the next verse, read it once more. Yanisha Sarvabhutanang Tasyang Jagarti Sangyami. That, that which is night to all beings, the man of self-control is awake there. Yasyang Jagrati Bhutani. And where all beings are awake, Sanisha Pashyato Mune. That is night for the Muni, the one who is Mananshila, who is not being lured by the so-called superficial pleasures of life, who has the capacity to dive within and contemplate on the core of his being, the, from which he is being projected as the universe. He wants to give, become the swastha, get established in that. And that's the, the, the one for him, the so-called the world of duality has fallen off. He is always established in the equanimity of his self. And the others, the equality of self, they don't they even don't have any idea of it. They are quite happy with the, this sense of pleasures of life. So with this, he's encouraging us to proceed so that we can relate to that higher plane of existence. So nothing can perturb the equality of the man of steady wisdom. So Bhagavan will be speaking in the next verse with the help of an example that this he is still relating to this world. He is in this world. He has not run away from this world. So we should always remember that the world is not the cause of suffering. The world is as it is. It is just a fact. How we relate to this world is the cause of our suffering. What's our reaction? How we respond to the stimuli called world. The world is just a stimuli. It is just there. How we respond to it. That entails our bliss or suffering. How we respond to it. So Bhagavan will be speaking in the next sloka with the help of an example. The equanimous state of a man of wisdom which is never perturbed. What is saying? Apuryamanam achala pratishtham Samudram apaha pravishanti yadvat tadvat kama yang pravishanti sarve sa shantim apnoti na kama kami. Apuryamanam. This a prefix is always used in the sense of encompassment. Apuryamanam. You see that ocean, all the rivers, all the water bodies at last comes and merges in the ocean. So they are constantly filling. All the rivers is just draining its water in the ocean. All the water what is coming and when the rain is there, torrential rain is there. At last the water, the sea level is the lowest level. There they will come and merge in the ocean through the rivers, through the canals, whatever it may be. But does it in any time do you go and can see that the level of the ocean is rising? So much of water is just pouring in it. It remains undisturbed. That apuriyamanam, just as the ocean remains undisturbed by the incessant flow of water from the rivers merging into it, from all the water bodies merging into it. Likewise, the sage, tadvat, that's just in the same way, the sage is unmoved. Tadvat, kama, yang pravishanti sarve. He's in this world. All the objects of sensed pleasures are with are that that's what he's moving around. They're constantly as if entering into him, but they cannot create any turmoil. Such a person alone is one who is established in wisdom. So here, Bhagavad Gita again and again speaks of not running away from life. We have to be in it. The world have we have to interact with it. And that becomes the proof of our wisdom, if being in it we still are not disturbed. In the life of Ramakrishna very interesting story is there the fact is there that he was initiated by many gurus one after the other they came as per his spiritual evolution the next guru came to take him onwards in his spiritual journey. 
So at one point of time, Bhairavi Brahmani came. And she actually guided Ramakrishna through all the paths of bhakti and the tantra, the Vaishnava practices, the tantra practices. And he found that Ramakrishna is established in it. But when he when she realized that Ramakrishna is married, Bhairavi would always caution her, caution him, Ramakrishna, that never be near her. That you are established in spirituality. So you may be lured again to the worldly ways of life if you are with your wife. So that was Bhairavi was always trying to keep the distance of Ramakrishna from the Holy Mother. And when Totapuri came, the next guru, he understood the that spiritual height to which Ramakrishna have uh, Ramakrishna has achieved. He gave the contrary instruction. He told that when you are in the world and the world doesn't affect you, that is the real test of your spirituality. So he never, and as such, uh, discouraged or was warned him to be away. That, that you must be in such a spiritual height in from where nothing can disturb you. Otherwise, what's the test of spirituality? If I find that by being in association with the world, I am easily lured. That speaks of what? That the poison is still within me. The evil is still within me. And that's why it has the capacity, the world has the capacity to draw me because the hankering is still there. If the hankering is still there, the world will be drawing you again. That, does, that doesn't in any way prove, is it, that becomes a test for your real spiritual evolution. The test of your real spiritual evolution is even when you are in the world, the world in no way can affect you. To understand this, that is it possible? Yes, it's possible. That example of Swami Vivekananda is very important. That when you go to the realization, the world appears to be just a mere projection. It's not the reality. It's a projection of the reality. Then the world no more becomes something, an object a tangible object for enjoyment. Your drag for the world, your pull, the world the, the, is constantly pulling us. That pull, the drag falls off. Swami Vivekananda's example is wonderful. That he used to say that when as a wandering monk, he was traversing, he was traveling through the deserts of Rajasthan and he was thirsty. He was in search of water. And Suddenly he saw a huge reservoir at a distance. He started proceeding towards it. And then suddenly he saw he was not reaching it. And then suddenly he saw it vanish. It was no more there. And then immediately the thought came that what? That from childhood I have studied about mirage in my textbook. And intellectually I have an idea of what mirage is. And I thought I have understood what mirage is. But today, for the first time, I really observe what mirage is. It's a matter of realization. Till now it was a conceptual knowledge. I realized. And what is the result? The next day, again, when I was pa passing through the desert, again, I saw the huge reservoir. That yesterday I saw it. I understood that it is something which is just a mere projection. It's not a tangible reality. That doesn't mean that I won't see it at all. Though I know the mirage to be an illusion, as long as I'm in my mind and senses, I'm bound to see it again. That my knowledge in no way entails that I won't see it again. I will see it again. But what's the difference? Yesterday it dragged me. It was pulling me. Today it has lost the power to drag me. I know it's just a mere projection. So now you will understand that what has been spoken of in this sloka, Apuryamanam. But all, he's interacting with the world. He's in the world, but as he has went to that realization, it's not mere intellectual conviction to his spiritual practices. He went to that realization where he was for the time being merged in that non-local consciousness and again came back to this world. Now everything has become something which is apparent, which is a superimposition. It is a projection. It has lost its uh, the, he has lost the 
uh, faculty, the perception. What the perception was that it is something a tangible reality. It is there. That has totally fallen off from him. So that's why nothing can disturb him. Everything is flowing into him, but in no way they can disturb him. Apuriyamanam achala pratishtam samudramapa pravishanti yadvat tadvat kama yang pravishanti sarve sashanti mapnoti prakamakami. Just as the ocean remains undisturbed by the incessant flow of waters. Apuriyamanam achala. Still it is achala. It's not disturbed. It's still, this level is maintained. Samudramapa pravishanti yadvat. All the apa, all the waters are entering into it. Still it is undisturbed. Similarly, all the objects of senses are present. They are as if entering into him, but in no way can disturb him. Tadvat kama yang pravishanti sarve. Sashantim, such a person alone can be equipoised. Not one who is constantly, this, there are three categories. One, pers- one is who are happy with the world. They're constantly interacting with the world, engrossed with the senseless world. Another category is running away from it. Both these categories cannot be happy. They're both disturbed. The one who is really is happy is the one who has evolved to that state where he is with the world, but the world in no way can disturb him. So, but we should remember that this intermediate, the one who is trying to run away from it, is the intermediate state. The one who is engrossed, they are the one category. The one who are in no way affected, they are the highest category. The interval state is the one who are trying to uh, be away from the sense object so that he can maintain his turmoil. They are also disturbed. That's, they're, they're actually, they are the only one who is dis- disturbed because the one who is merged in the senses, sometimes we find though they suffering entails later, for the time being they are happy. The one who is realized, of course they are happy. They have are, are attained the ultimate uh, fulfillment in life. But the one who is struggling, they are the one who is really suffering. As in the Bhagavatam, it has been mentioned, Klishta Antarito Jara. There's Antarita, the one who is in between. They are the one who is really suffering. But what's the way out? Are we to again regress to that of the sensitive world of existence? That again is not going to give us fulfillment. In the long run, we will find that we have been drained out. It's because it is not we who enjoy. The enjoyments enjoy us. Bhogana bhukta, vayameva bhukte. We come to sip the honey, sit in the honey, and then when we try to fly off, we find our wings are stuck in the honey. The objects of enjoyment obsess, we become obsessive, compulsive, and then we cannot get rid of it. So that's, that cannot be the uh, ultimate uh, plane of existence. We have to transcend. We have to reach that state where we are always equipoised. But we have to go through this, the state of Krishna, that is a suffering which has a purpose, which has a meaning. In this life, we have to suffer. Now we have to choose which, what, what will we suffer. Will we, should we suffer by being engrossed in the world? Or if suffering, there all suffering is there. That if we have to suffer, why not we choose that suffering, which ultimately will take us beyond suffering. So that's why that the Antarita state is okay. It's not that we are saying that there is any way we are condemning that state. But that's the state which we have also have, we can be transcended. And when you transcend that, then you become that equipoise where nothing can disturb you because you have realized the truth that it is the projection. One you have realized nothing can in any way uh, disturb you. You will be see, still seeing the world, but you will know it as a mere projection it will lose its sense of tangible reality. So there's a wonderful story that when you, uh, after realization, the question comes that after realization, why should we have to again interact with the world? In our scripture, they speak of prarabdha, that even when you have reached the realization, the old, your, your past, uh, this, uh, the, the actions which has resulted in this birth, all the karmas which has resulted in this, this birth, it has its own impulse. It has its own inertia, the force. That has to exhaust. 
the common example which we give suppose when the fan is revolving how do we stop the fan you just switch off when you switch off the fan does the fan stop immediately no it goes on revolving for some time till it's all the the past all the impulse which has resulted in that motion it gets exhausted and then it comes to rest so when we go to the realization then the desires all the desires which were entering in all our actions that force was the desire that has been switched off there is no more desire that has fallen off but the past uh, this force that that will entail in the movement uh, of, of our life that there will entail the continuation of our life for some more time that's the idea of prarabdha that still it continues but the switch has been switched off there is no desire behind it so they don't affect you're just the witness of what's going on in your life as per the prarabdha as per the actions which has to be uh, experience all the results of the actions which has to be experienced in this life you go through that without being uh, in any way affected by them as ramakrishna jokingly used to say that the, it is it is it is said in the scripture that if you take a dip in the ganges all your sins are washed away but ramakrishna gives away jokingly he says that a blind man a blind person blind he became, he was blind because of prarabdha because of some actions in his past life he was blind in this that's what we believe that, that, that that's why he's blind so a blind man took a dip in the ganges his all his sins were washed away but his blindness was not cured he was still blind because that is the prarabdha he has to go through it but he goes through it equipoised without any sense of suffering he now assured of the fact is he's a pure conscious principle he or she is a conscious principle and everything going on is just is a witness in no way he is identified with them he is out of the stream in no way he is uh, in the stream out of the stream witnessing the flow there is a nice story of shukadeva with which we will say this and we will come to the uh conclusion of today's class the shukadeva the son of vyasa the vyasa sent him to king janaka that he told that to complete your education in the spiritual domain in, in this as per the spirituality is concerned spiritual life is concerned you go to king janaka and he uh, that he will be your preceptor so when shukadeva went to king janaka's court for the first few days no one cared for him now vyasa in those days was a very prominent figure so his son came but no one cared for him shukadeva was in no way perturbed he was just waiting there for king janaka to accept him and suddenly after 3 4 days suddenly the king himself with all his retinue with all his ministers came to give a grand reception to shukadeva still shukadeva was unperturbed the same there was no change in his reaction he was equipoised when he was uh, everyone was indifferent to him he was same equipoised person when there was a grand reception now with the grand reception he was brought into the court and there were many beautiful courtesans the damsels all around so many things to distract singing dancing was going on and the king now gave shukadeva a bowl full to the brim with milk and asked him to go around and shukadeva went around without spilling a single drop of it and then the king janaka declared nothing else has to be taught what your father has taught you that's more than you have achieved as per, as per the instructions of your father what you have achieved that entails the be all and end all of spiritual journey nothing else has to be taught so that's the thing which has been spoken of in this sloka that nothing can perturb he has reached the what you say the core of his existence in the that in the ocean all the waves are in the, the you come near the shore it is all waves and if you go to puri that's any in puri it's still there 
you know, in small boats, the fishermen, they're called nuris, they go to fish. And it's a very wonderful sight to see them. They try to go to the deep waters. The waves come and again throw them back in the shore. They try again and again. You know, because they also know that you go a bit deep into the ocean, it is all calm. All the waves are in near the shore. So somehow, with all your struggle, you have to cross that barrier of the waves. Then you can enjoy fishing in the equinomous ocean, which is beyond the shores, is a bit beyond the shores. So that's what, that all these waves are on the shores of our existence, deep in the core, it is all equanimous. All our sadhana is to somehow transcend this so that we can enjoy the equanimity there. And once you are there, nothing can disturb you. And as long as you are not there, this constant chase of the desires, know it for certain, in no way can give us happiness. As there's a wonderful story of King Yajati. He lived for 100 years, but still he found that his desire to live is still there. And now he begged for the lifespan of his youngest son so that he can live longer. The younger son gave him his lifespan to him. That's how the story goes. And he lived this lifespan of his the youngest son to live for hundreds of years. And then what his realization was is spoken of in one of the slokas of the Bhagavata. Najatu kama kamanam shamyate. The desires are never fulfilled by what you say that enjoying them. If you go on enjoying them and you think that by enjoying my desires will fulfill, it is never fulfilled. And what is the realization? It is just like pouring fuel into the fire. The more you pour, the more the fire flares up. So it can never give satisfaction. It's always the ways to break through the shores of these waves to reach that equanimity. That struggle is there where we have to restrain ourselves and have to go through this path so that at last we can reach that equanimity. And once you have reached there, and nothing can disturb you. You become like that ocean where waters are always entering, but in no way it can disturb you. It, you, you know, in no way the ocean transcends the level, uh, the sea level. It is always content within that sea level. So you become that equanimous. So that's was spoken of in the 70th uh, sloka. One more sloka is remaining for this chapter. Uh, there's two more. This 71 and 72, we will take those two slokas again in the next class. And uh, if time permits, we will even start uh, the synopsis of the second chapter, this wonderful chapter of Bhagavad Gita, the second chapter, uh, which we will uh, have a synopsis of it after studying the 71st and the 72nd sloka. So with this, we stop our discussion today. Thank you all. Namaskars.